So let me tell you guys what you're not going to hear this week on the Weekly Havoc. You're not going to hear the original lineup of guests that we had. You're not going to hear the 30 plus minutes of dead air glitches, uh, sound deficiencies, all kinds of things like that that kicked off the episode. You're not going to hear my internet uh, go out, I don't know, within the first 10 minutes of the show. Um, You're going to miss all that. So it was our most snake-bitten episode in a long time, if not ever. Um, But a lot of that should just disappear with magic podcast dust uh, that we uh, and and the production ability of Mike Neal, our producer, to make all that uh, disappear. So that's the good news. Um, a good sign from the podcast guys that we should never be too big for our britches. We're not above routine technical mishaps uh, piled on top of each other all in one episode. Um, but for me, I was also, uh, you know, I'm still dealing with a lot of fatigue stuff. And and so that doesn't always make me as articulate as I'd like to be. But with the uh, last minute guest changes, we had to come up with a subject uh, at the last minute and I bounced it off. Uh, ben Verlees and Dax Mallory, our guests, said, hey, guys, here's three subjects. Which one of these do you guys want to go with? And the one I could articulate the least happened to be the one that they went with. So you feel free to send uh, you know, all critical comments to them as well. Uh, uh, I, I roped them into this so they could shoulder some of the blame. Um, but the subject was that we went with that it took me a minute to figure out how to articulate was essentially – what should the layman understand about national security? And we adhered pretty closely to that. Um, both Dax and Ben are great guys with a lot of experience. And um, hopefully everyone listening can take away a couple of bullet points, um, a couple of ideas um, from their comments and uh, just a way to think about national security problems, a way to um, – kind of assess what's a real threat and what just might be playing to your emotions. Um, So it all worked out in the end, but boy, was it an adventure getting there. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Havoc where we engage in roundtable discussion with the staff, writers, and friends of Havoc Journal and try to make a little order out of chaos. Dax Mallory is yet another of the Mercer College Mafia that we have had on the show. He's a Mercer College graduate and longtime friend with Havoc Journal owner Charlie Faint. And Charlie was nice enough to pimp him onto the show, and we're glad he's here. He's an Army pilot, or was an Army pilot for a long time, graduate of Louisiana State University Law School and Air and Marine Operations, uh, and then then went on to do Air and Marine Operations with the CBP, with the Customs and Border Protection Agency. He's had assignments in El Paso, Washington, D.C., and Jacksonville, Florida. Dax, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. You guys do great stuff and put out great content, and I hope that I'm uh, able to contribute at least minimally. That is all we ask from a Mercer College graduate, um, and so far we have yet to be disappointed. So, yeah, it's good. Uh, and obviously, Dax and I have been talking for a little while before the show, um, but we're thrilled to have him on. And uh, it's always fun every time we have another Mercer College guy on here, find a little bit more 
about the mystery that is an enigma wrapped in a riddle that is Charlie Faint. Uh, and that's always fun, too. Ben Varlis is a former U.S. Army Mountain Infantry Platoon Sergeant. He served in domestic and overseas roles. He was a sniper section leader. He then went on to work on the U.S. Ambassador to Iraq's protective security detail. And he's also provided security consulting services for public and private sectors, including tactical training, physical and information security, executive protection, protective intelligence, risk management, insider threat mitigation, and anti-terrorism. He has earned both a bachelor's and a master's in intelligence studies from American Military University. He has a graduate certificate in cybersecurity from Colorado State University and is currently in his second year of American Military University's Doctorate of Global Security Program. Ben, really glad you could be here. Thank you, sir. And I, I apologize once again for being on the phone as opposed to the computer. We try to battle out some, some technical difficulties. and so. But uh, I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm happy for the opportunity um, to, to do this and speak with you guys today. Listen, I'm glad you're here too. And I am not going to mention that as a graduate certificate, a graduate certificate holder in cybersecurity is the one that could not get onto the app to record on time. <laughs> I will not bring that up. I am too big to bring that up. But actually, you know, it's funny, Ben, because I was, when I was reading your bio, um, I actually, it was always kind of a, uh, back of the mind, like pep project that I really want to do the doctorate of global security program at AMU. And then I, because I thought, boy, you know, that would be really good. And then, you know, you host a show and you have all this street cred. And I just decided to start hosting a podcast without it. And I feel like I'm a lesser <laughs> man for it, but good for you for going through it. I appreciate, I appreciate that. And uh, we will, we will see if it's worth all the money. I'm, I'm <laughs> into it. Well, it seems like a sexy program. I got to say, so little full disclosure for everybody listening in the last 24 hours before this recording, we uh, had a bunch of cancellations, no harm, no foul, um, not casting aspersions on anyone. It's just one of those things that, you know, happens. So we adjusted fire and uh, brought on Ben and, and you know, and Dak suddenly was, you know, he was a rock. He was our constant. He was still there from the original lineup, but everything kind of changed and our focus for the episode changed. So the three of us, Ben, Dax, and I talked about what our subject should be so I could get their buy-in. And uh, help, you know, diversify the blame if this doesn't pan out right uh, before the episode. And we came up with a subject that I think we all really like. I just have to figure out a nice, succinct way to actually phrase it. So bear with me while I babble a little bit and try to think out loud and come up with a coherent, uh, glib, succinct subject line for us. Essentially, what we want to talk about, the substance of what we want to talk about, based on their backgrounds is what easily digestible bullet points, let's say, would they convey to a civilian or to a layman who doesn't understand the national security apparatus? Obviously, with DAX, you've got somebody that spent a long time, not just in the military, but at CBP, working very, let's call them topical issues. You know, um, everything that Customs and Border Protection does seems to make Tucker Carlson or NBC news or whatever. So this is stuff that's that always, anytime they spike at CBP, it's going to be something newsworthy. So obviously his, um, I don't want to say insider. It is insider knowledge, but I, I'm not trying to say he's good. Tell tales out of school. I just mean um, he has 
a wealth of experience that I think um, would allow him to enlighten people and maybe uh, add a little bit more light than heat to a discussion about some of the topical things we're seeing. And in addition with Ben, uh, again, wealth of military uh, experience, but also a very strong security experience. And as I I jokingly mocked before, you know, the cybersecurity background and all the rest and doing this doctorate of global security, there's um, he now has uh, an intellectual framework that I think might help him be a lot more succinct than me in giving easily digestible talking points or, or thought experiments even to a layman to understand the national security picture, maybe a little bit better than somebody that's just reading, I don't know, Time Magazine or the latest copy of Newsweek or watching Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson for their news might otherwise get. So in post-production, I will think of a nice, easy, glib, succinct way of saying that. For now, since I think the three of us kind of know where we're going with this, um, hopefully, and hopefully I haven't lost them and they're not going cross-eyed and, and slap themselves in the head for even agreeing to do this show. Let me start with Dax. Obviously, the border, anything that happens on our southern border is going to be big news. Um, I get why blood pressure rises in the American public when we have immigration crises or something related to the border. So let's first start with your uh, rabble rousing. Uh, I'm just going to be very broad rabble rousing Tucker Carlson viewer who is outraged and all that. What's an easy, what's a good digestible uh, bullet point that they should kind of think about what's some background that might either justify their anger or mitigate it somewhat. What, what What's something that they should know? Well, it, it is a very tough topic. Um, when I first got to El Paso in 2010, they were averaging eight murders a day in Juarez, Mexico. Um, I would open my front door and I would see more of Mexico than I would of the United States of America. That's how I, I lived on the border. I thought it was one of those experiences where it, we were down there every day catching the baddest of the bad guys. But that's not what the news was showing. And you you understand the purpose of the media is to both inform, excuse me, both inform and sell commercials and content. They're, they're just like a hospital's job isn't there to make people better. That's the doctor's job. The hospital's job is there to make a profit. Um, and there was a lot that I saw that wasn't being reported that was the all the goodness that we were working. And for the people on the ground, what you see on TV is not necessarily what you do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Yes, unfortunately, there was a lot of, um, if you want to say, just people coming across the border looking for work. Absolutely. Those weren't the, the focus of what we would look for every day. We were looking for the human smugglers. We were looking for the dirty agents. We were looking for the folks who were bringing across the the methamphetamine or the fentanyl that was eventually going to make it to the streets and into our schools. You know, the and to use a not a derogatory term, but the, the farm workers who were coming across to to move and follow the crops across the U.S. That wasn't our focus, but that seemed to be the focus of every news source. Here we are, just trying to 
you know, catch all of these migrant workers coming across mm. to make a better life for themselves. Right, right. So kind of the implicit humanity of doing that kind of frontline work gets lost. You're kind of, you're a caricature, right? You're either the fascist state that is, you know, trying to harass these, these poor people, or you are, um, you know, a, a tool of American imperialism and American superiority, something like that. But there's, but they're kind of missing the bigger picture of what your actual mission is and how much good you are doing on the ground and all the nuances that go into that job. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think it's because the, the nuances, they, they aren't as sexy. Yeah. Um, you know, people aren't as concerned about, and I hate to say it, you know, marijuana, when I first got to El Paso, marijuana coming across the border, I could go out and catch as much or little of that as I wanted to every day. But if people aren't dying from marijuana overdoses, it's not going to make the news. That's not what's going to you know show up. Um, you know, with my current position in Jacksonville, Florida, we work in the source and transit zone, you know, capturing in Central and South America. I can go out on any day and catch thousands of pounds of cocaine. But is that what the public is really interested in? If it's not, then it's not going to make the news. I know a couple of people that would be very interested in that. So just let me know offline after. But, but <laughs> yeah, that's a different I, subject. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it seems to be that you know, the, our focus as agents on the ground in, in the air, as altruistic as it is, just trying to do the right thing for the most amount of people, when you use that, say, the right thing, yeah. is try to keep crime and detrimental things outside of our country. That's our focus. But what seems to be reported, you know, mostly are kids in cages. Of course. And uh, unfortunately, that's that's what gets people emotionally involved, and that's what's going to sell more commercials to the media, and I understand what their job is. But for anyone who doesn't live in the area, they're going to have a biased view because they only have one side that's presented to them. I have the benefit of having the, the side that's presented on the news and the reality of actually working the border along with thousands of other agents as well. So, Ben, tell me how right I am in saying that any job, whether it's DOD or any other alphabet soup agency, any job in that sphere is going to be focused on the greater good. And as a result, there, there's always going to be exceptions. There's always going to be people that are underserved and um, not supported perfectly in that scenario because those agencies are by their nature focused on helping the greater amount of people sometimes at the expense of the minority. Uh, so you're kind of damned if you do damned if you don't, and you're kind of uh, no good deed goes unpunished when you're kind of working those lanes, right? Yeah. Um, and, and it was, you know, a lot of like what, uh, what Dax said, where you, you have to prioritize, what you're what you're doing and it it is it is kind of a thankless job because you know you you have to you have to always kind of find uh find places where you have to trim the fat as it were um and you you have a finite amount of resources um and a monumental task um uh you know it's the we the uh, we the unwilling, led by the unknowing, asked to do the impossible for the ungrateful. Done so much for so long with so little, we're now capable of doing anything with nothing. So, with that kind of in mind, um, you know, coming from the security side, 
Um, whenever we do a risk assessment, we look at okay, what are what are the critical assets? What um, what requires the most protection? Um, what are the the other assets? Um, and by assets, you know, we were thinking um, people, facility, you know, personnel, facilities, um, uh, information. Um, th- you know, those are usually the ones that you you focus on and. Uh, so in in that, after you, you you identify those assets, okay, what what are their what are the threats to those? What are the what are our vulnerabilities? And you start building from that, um, and it it ultimately boils down with the client or you know your consumer. Um, what is the cost to benefit ratio there? Yeah. It's you know um, whether it's uh, again cost and resources. Uh, cost in time or cost in money, um, you know what? What does it cost, and you know what can we get the most out of from that? Um, and and I think that's one of the biggest uh, challenges whenever you know whenever security is pitching a a uh, a plan or a change to you know the C suite. Um, you know it's it it comes down to okay. What's this going to cost, and how is this going to make my company or my organization better? Um, you know, in the the sense of the border, you know, again, do we focus on meth and fentanyl, or do we focus on marijuana and migrant workers? So I want to pick up on that because you hit on a bunch of subjects that I think a layman should understand. I just realized now, and th- and thank you guys for bearing with me while I tried to sort this out. I think. The best summation of what we're talking about is what should the layman understand about national security? And I think what I'm hearing, Ben, is maybe the most misunderstood part of national security is risk assessment and there, and from risk assessment, therefore, risk mitigation. And I think that's something that a layman doesn't necessarily understand. It's easy to make a movie. It's easy to look at one specific person and follow them on a, on a traumatic journey and empathize with them, put yourself in their shoes, feel what they're feeling, and get worked up into a lather about whatever it is they're going through. But you don't have that luxury when you're working in the national security apparatus, and there needs to be a operating system that guides you into – assessing and triaging what threats are there and what job responsibilities you have. And I think you hit the nail on the head that it comes down to um, starting with a very left brain function of what is the risk assessment? What are we assessing here? And from that, that will order our steps and that will allow us to decide how to triage a situation. Am I overthinking that or does that kind of make sense? No, that's, that's pretty much exactly right. Um, uh, you know, it, it really is okay. Um, what what is our focus? And you know, some of the the stuff that you were touching on with the um, or Dax was touching on with the news and the the messaging there is, um, you know, people are being told, okay, what what should I be outraged about this week? Yeah, and it it often you know we've been seeing a lot of it. You know, it's you know, a, a wag the dog kind of situation where your 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 interest, your your attention is being diverted to something else, and it's getting 
getting that back on track. Um, but it's, it's really, I mean, it's, it's, uh, trying to drain the ocean with a bucket. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a daunting task and, um, you know, it's, it's kind of, again, redirecting some of people, how, how people think about, uh, what their, what the nationals, uh, uh, national security kind of situation is um, if, if, if I give a, a little example um, and I know this kind of goes off into the weeds a little bit, but right after nine 11 um, we had the anthrax attacks. Yeah. And right. uh, you know, it, it was a minute blip on the radar as soon as they figured out that it wasn't Al Qaeda. Well, it was actually the guy who was actually responsible for it. There was a method to his madness. Also, he worked for I believe it was uh, U.S. Armid, which is like the, the DoD's version of the CDC. Um, they handle a lot of like the bioweapons programs and uh, dealing with the pan- pandemics um, and uh, you know kind of bio uh, biodefense and bioweapons research. Um, well, he worked there, and he'd been he'd been warning, um, uh, he'd been warning people in the in the national security circles as, "Hey, we are not prepared for a bio attack," and so he created one to kind of get that attention. Here we are, twenty years later, you know, going rounds over a, a disease with a two percent mortality rate. Sure. And, you know, when we, and we don't know how to, our, our responses were just not, not in line with, uh, previous knowledge. It just kind of things got, uh, the train got off the tracks and nobody was trying to slow this thing down. And again, so it, it looking at, okay, well, what was what was the likelihood of a of a bioterrorism attack or or you know dealing with a pandemic like this? Well, you know, high impact, low probability. So it got shuffled down towards the bottom. Well, now it's the only priority. But you know, and it's the all you see all this other stuff that's happening kind of behind the scenes that it's like, oh, maybe we should start paying attention to this, like you know, China meeting with the Taliban. Yeah. It's yeah. Like don't I mean this is this is this is important. Yeah. It seems like it's a it's a regional hegemony thing, but it it will have greater implications. And I'll, I'll <laughs> I'm bogarting your I've hijacked your show. No 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 so. no you haven't at all. <laughs> no I mean it, there's there's I'm actually taking some notes so I don't lose the thread anywhere. Um, I want to start with the last thing you said because I I think that is something that layman would not understand is to assess risk the that you know, uh, that classic army risk management matrix, you know, is impact and probability that you can have something high impact, but incredibly low probability. Um, so, you know, we don't always plan for planes to be flying into the world trade center. Yes. That has a high impact, but the odds of that happening was assessed as being very slim to none prior to nine 11. Um, whereas we, you know, don't always have a high impact, uh, you know, just from not wearing your seatbelt, but the probability that something could happen and you'd be dinged is significant. So 
being able to assess risk on those two graph on those two uh, axes is important. And I think it's almost implied with anybody that spent any time doing work in the national security sphere. And I think that's something that a layman doesn't always get. And that's what makes them easy to be distracted by shiny objects, by the outrage, by the sympathy, by the human story and miss the underlying um, fundamentals of the risk that might be out there or the solution to that risk. What do you think, Dax? Am I, am I overthinking this or is that kind of a fair point? No, I, I think you're spot on. Um, and, uh, you know, to, to put it to the border scenario, you can say, you know, what is the probability that people are going to come across the border today? 100%. What is the risk to national security? It's probably very low. They say, now caveat that with, what is the risk that someone with nefarious intentions are going to come across the border today? Very low, because you have a lot of Middle Easterners who can blend in quite well. If you've got a group of 40 individuals coming across the border, it's very easy for them to blend in. But the, what is the impact for them to, you know, once they get in, and, and what is the risk? It's very high. If they are coming across and uh, try to blend into a large group because, you know, we try not to, you know, it goes back to the old ad- adage, you, and, and to, to be a little vulgar here, you can edit it out later. You, you build a thousand bridges, you're not a bridge builder if you fornicate with one goat. Um, so you're, <laughs> that, that's what you're known as. Um, so you it's know, a high you, impact for the goat. That's right. It, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is yeah. very high impact. Maybe even high so, probability too, depending on where you are. But yes, yeah. True yeah. statement. Yeah. But uh, I mean, we look at you know, the. Um, we can stop a thousand individuals from coming across with nefarious activities, but the probability of them actually being in the group that we catch is very, very low. And then you look at what is reported, and it's going to be the low impact to the U.S., but the high probability, which is the seasonal, the migrant workers, mm-hmm. the families coming across looking for a better life. So where do we put our focus? You know, we want to focus on what is going to harm America the most. But that's, unfortunately, it's very hard to separate that out. It's very hard to get the intelligence, the human that's going to allow us to do that. Yeah. Um, and we, we get wrapped up in stats because the Appropriations Committee in Congress wants to know how many people did you catch today? Yeah. yeah. Well, yes, we, we caught up. We got 7,000 people coming across the border today, but they were all coming across because it's also crop season and it's time to harvest. We didn't get any nefarious individuals. So did we really put the best use of our assets forward? Or should we have focused on human that says, Let's, you know, put all of these assets toward a smaller group or a smaller, you know, probability of an individual, but there's a high risk associated with individuals coming across in this area. So it's, I think you're spot on on that. I want to throw out another um, aspect of what Ben had touched on before, um, and that is, uh, we we talked about the shiny objects and and the diversions. And let's be clear, I, I don't think any of us are necessarily ascribing nefarious motives to people in the media or, or even in, in the government. It's 
a lot of it's narrative building and you build a narrative for a lot of reasons, many of which are not nefarious. That said, I do think there is a little bit of trickery and chicanery when it comes to the nomenclature that's used. And Ben, you brought up the point about the anthrax. And when we realized the anthrax wasn't coming from Al Qaeda, the kind of, it just lost the, the narrative died and it lost this sex appeal that it needed for that story to be followed through on. There was another story in the wake of 9-11 that also uh, had the same issue, except in the other direction, which was the Beltway Sniper. And the Beltway Sniper um, incident, which really gripped the country in the wake of 9-11, and we were all worried it was al-Qaeda or what have you. Um, But it was only uh, 10 or more years after the fact that people started paying attention to the fact that the Beltway Sniper was not a simple domestic uh, crime spree that it actually that he was radicalized, and while he hadn't gone and trained in Afghanistan uh, as a member of Al Qaeda, this that was very much on his mind. In addition to a criminal background, an army background, um, there was a, a, a gay slash pedophilia like relationship between he and and the other the kid that was with him in the Beltway sniper incident. But the point being that there was an international terrorism aspect to it in that he identified with them and had been, and had converted to Islam and, and become radicalized and all that. And sometimes when when the nomenclature shifts, I think it's easier for those that are already in the national security apparatus to identify that and go, hey, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Whereas for the layman – you're you're following other people's leads and you're going to go wherever your priors and wherever your biases lead you more often. And it's sometimes harder to kind of make that very cut and dry decision uh, assessment and go, hey, this is what this is. Let's call this by its name. Is that is that a fair assessment, Ben? Ben, before you go, if you could also comment and tie in the uh, the Boston bomber with that as well, because mm. I think that would be a natural yeah. evolution of radicalization in the U.S. of a person living amongst us and just getting uh, wrapped up. And I, I see a definite parallel between the D.C. sniper and the Boston Marathon bombing as well. I apologize to you know jump in there like that. No, not at no, all. And, no. and Ben, if you can please submit your answer in essay form and show all your work <laughs> in a separate workbook, that would be appreciated too. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what, what Dex was talking about earlier, I actually uh, wrote my master's thesis on the the kind of crime terror nexus between mm-hmm. uh, uh, Mexican drug trafficking, trafficking organizations and foreign terrorist organizations. Uh, but that's a that's a tirade for another day. Uh, well, maybe even yeah. for just a couple minutes. Uh, we might circle <laughs> back to that because that's a passion of mine. Yeah. Cool. Um, so. Uh, looking at domestic radicalization, um, it wasn't it it wasn't until um, honestly the I guess the countering violent extremism programs didn't really take off until um, uh, most of the way through Obama's first term, and this is when we start you know uh, 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 the DC sniper. Uh, uh, his name is escaping me. John Muhammad, I want to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, John Malvo. Yeah. Uh, Malvo was the the, the, the kid. kid. Yeah. Um, but uh, um, so yes, he had been radicalized. Uh, uh, Nadal Hassan 
was yep. talking to Al Al Al, Al uh, the Fort Hood uh, shooter for those Al, that Al, don't understand. Al, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fort Hood shooter uh, Al Alaki. Uh, he went to CSU, you know, an hour and a half north of me here, um, and was radicalized on campus. Um, you know, there were there were other influences, but. Um, he didn't get a cybersecurity uh, graduate degree, did he? He, did, he, he didn't. He okay. didn't. All right. Just, just want to check. If so, we would have the just Riverside app available for him and he could come log on. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Well, I'm sitting outside. So logging so on. The UAB, <laughs> the, the, I'm sitting outside so the UAB has, has can get their good PIV um, and 10 children don't have to die. Or excuse me, seven children have, don't have to die and an aid worker. Um, but no, so it... I mean, we had, um, you know, you, we saw kind of, um, as, as ISIS kind of graduated from being a JV team, um, to, you know, holding a significant amount of territory, um, almost kind of, uh, rogue state Taliban style, um, you know, then the, the focus started going, okay, well, all these people are getting radicalized. Why? what can we do to, to really stop it? Um, the irony is at the same time, they were also eliminating a lot of the programs, um, used to help find these people, or at least identify and intervene early. Um, NYPD's intelligence division, uh, they were using undercover agents in mosques, right. especially those that had been identified in like the Holy land foundation, right. Uh, trial where you know these charitable groups were funding Al Qaeda or uh, Hamas or Hezbollah, um, uh, and so you we removed this key piece of uh, uh, of human of human intelligence capabilities for over fears of um, you know whether or not it violated First Amendment rights, and you know it it bore. Um, it bore looking into and say, okay, well, yes, we're collecting, we're technically collecting intelligence, but we're not, um, it's, uh, it's, it was one of those like real gray areas where the libertarian in me is like, God, no, but the rational human being in me says, well, you know, like, like you said, if it's quacking like a duck and walking like a duck, um, Yes, it could be a platypus, but more than likely it's a duck, um, yeah. you know, and kind of getting down, um, getting down and looking at that um, to kind of put it in a uh, in a more contemporary perspective. I see and hear, you know, a lot of the the verbiage being used and the classifications and the characterizations of um, conservatism in America. And all the things that we were taught for a decade that were bad news bears and we're going to radicalize people, uh, you know, create violent, like Islamic violent extremism is being done actively in, in not even just actively, but proactively by the news and the government, the same people that were issuing these condemnations 10 years ago. Yeah. And so it's, uh, it, you know, it is kind of dichotomous in um in, in how that's going about and it's like okay you know uh you know the, you see a couple of these these memes running around and it's like you know uh 
what made you an extremist? And I said, well, well, you did. Right. You did. Right. You know, you um, you want to see why there's this rise of extremism in the military. It's that underappreciation. It's the, uh, you know, being demonized, having to take litmus tests um, to, to work details. Um, and, uh, you know, the sequestration and, you know, you mess with guys pay. I mean, you're going to that you're messing with somebody's livelihood. You're sure. denigrate what they do, what they, what they're passionate about. Yeah. They're going to get, ex, they're going to get extreme. Um, they're, they're going to start pushing back. So Ben, I want to, I want to pick up on the, I think the nomenclature thing is a big problem because, and, and let me, let me give some context to this and Dax, then I'll, I'll go to you with this. My, um, when I talk to somebody that has not served in the military or has no firsthand experience in, in the national security apparatus, um, you can almost tell what new, where they get their news based off of the nomenclature that they use. Um, uh, 10 years ago, they would call it ISIL instead of ISIS. Um, you know, uh, they're in England or if you talk to Brits, um, if they said, oh, well, you know, we, um, you know, there's a problem with Asian gangs and you'd always hear that in England. And for a while I was like, what, what's going on in England? There's all these Asian gangs or Asian crime or, or there's problems with rampant pedophilia and sex abuse in the Asian community in England. And I was like, what, what, what's what's going on with the Japanese, Chinese, Korean immigrants uh, in, in England? And then you realize, oh, Chris, have you not seen Big Trouble in Little China? <laughs> it's true. It's true. Good point. So, well, well the thing is, is, is then I realized that the nomenclature was, oh, what they specifically mean is the Pakistani community, but um, but the nomenclature is changed to call it Asian. So it's kinder, uh, I suppose, uh, if vagueness is a kindness. It's unspecific. Um, it certainly doesn't demonize anybody because nobody really understands who it is you're talking about, but it also makes it very easy to misidentify the problem. And the one, the example that I see in the United States is when we talk about gun violence and, and, and we seem to think that's a helpful label um, when in fact, all that does is obfuscate what the problem is. Gun violence could be anything from an accidental discharge of a child finding their, their uh, uh, irresponsibly a left uh, uh, firearm to gang violence to, you know, the Pulse nightclub attack in Orlando. It could be anything. Um, so the words matter because we do have so few people, I think, that serve in the national security apparatus or in the military. And as a result, there isn't a lot of understanding as to how to keep people safe. There's not a lot of firsthand knowledge. So when we confuse the picture with the words that we choose to use, only the people like you guys who are actually doing the work day in, day out, are really going to understand what's going on. Everybody of the layman is going to sit and watch the news or read the papers and be completely misinformed. Am I onto something, Dax, or, or, or do you think that's a bridge too far? No, I, I think people um, have grown to a position where they're afraid to say, I don't know. And if they watch enough news they don't want to perceived, be perceived as being ignorant. So they want to be in the know. Everyone wants to be a subject matter expert on whatever topic comes around. Not everyone can be a, uh, you know, a, a renaissance man, a renaissance sure. person, a renaissance sure. individual, whoever. Uh, but 
it's okay to say, you know what? I don't know everything about that topic and I don't feel qualified to give my opinion. Yeah. And I, I think with as much news that's out there, the news feeds into a false sense of an, uh, uh, qualified intelligence that you can speak as an expert on a subject without having any expertise in the subject area at all. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it, you you see it with uh, shoot COVID nineteen. Yeah, how many people are now experts in virology? Yeah, read or what they've seen on the news. And you know, I I told a uh, a good fr- friend of mine and a contributor on the uh, on the Havoc Journal here. I said, look, unless you have a PhD or an MD at the end of your name, don't give me advice on what is or is not. You know the the right answer or the wrong answer, and how to deal with this, uh, you know this virus. But I, I I am one of the first people to stand up and raise my hand and say, look, I don't know. I'm not going to give you an uh, opinion or an idea that's outside of my scope of firsthand knowledge. And maybe that comes from you know my my legal training and a mm-hmm. little bit you know, a, a law that I have is that only testify to what you have firsthand knowledge about. Everything else after that. Is rumor and speculation and hearsay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a, a, a hypothesis out there. I'm not sure how much I agree with it, but I want to bounce this off you, Ben, and see what you think. Um, is there a problem in the country? Is the real divide in the country one between education and experience? And that's painting with very broad brushstrokes. But if we look at the tensions that we see. Uh, and you talked before about uh, you know, people in the military that feel very persecuted right now or under the microscope because they voted for Trump or what have you. Um, is there kind of a divide between people that are actually doing certain jobs and a very educated public? The public has never been more credentialed in the education system, yet so few have actually experienced – You know, so few have been on the cutting edge of the virology issues or the medical health issues or national security issues. So, but they're very educated. So it kind of makes them dangerous because it's this weaponized um, uh, general intelligence that, that doesn't really have a focus kind of be, but kind of being used and mustered against people who may not be as educated, but who are actually the ones that are doing these jobs and understand uh, kind of the nuances of the day-to-day work that has to be done to execute these, these kind of missions. Does that make sense? Do you think that I'm onto something there or is that a little off? The, the hybrid of the two. And um, be, because there are, there are strengths to both. Um, I look at it as, I mean, if we're going to look at it from say a military perspective, um, those with experience those are your those are your tactical level guys. Those are um, you know those are the guys your your fire team leaders, your squad leaders. You know the guys that are doing it. You know they're, they're cutting their teeth. You know the private on the ground. He has those. He has that experience. You know you you listen to that platoon sergeant that has four deployments um, over. You know the. Uh, his counterpart, the guy who isn't, has been educated, the guy, the PL, the PL is leading the platoon, but he is being mentored by that platoon sergeant. Now the PL, um, maybe the 
example, but you look at your captains, your commanders, and um, oh, I'm joking about Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're they're coming for you now. They're coming for you now. Yeah, you set them off. <laughs> wow, that couldn't have been uh, uh, better times. I, I want to thank Ben for joining us today. Unfortunately, he won't be able to uh, continue on the show. They, He's now in custody. In yeah, on my phone yeah. as I speak. <laughs> um, well, for, well yeah, listen. I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what. Um, I'll, I'll throw one more log on the fire uh, while you hold for one second. Um, I, I, the reason I bring all this stuff up about the nomenclature is I believe, especially because we keep going to examples that kind of stemmed from nine, in the wake of 9-11, I'm very worried that we might see those nomenclature battles resume now with what's happening in Afghanistan because I'm, I'm firmly, I firmly believe we will see second and third order effects of this withdrawal that will force us to reconsider and, and probably have to go back into Afghanistan. But I do expect there will be attacks. I do expect to see a terror surge in Western Europe and the, and maybe even the United States. And I do think that the nomenclature battles may start up again, where for various political reasons or based off your affiliate political affiliation, you might not want to call it what it otherwise might want to be called because there, it might be a little too sensitive to say, Oh yeah, well, if we call it Al Qaeda, that means it came from Afghanistan. And that means this is that we didn't really actually behead that snake when we were there. Um, and, and so we don't want to use that name and we just fuzzy the picture more. So this is kind of some of the context of why I'm bringing that up again. Right. Um, so for a little shameless self-promotion, um, one of the articles I wrote for Havoc Journal, one of my earlier ones, was specifically addressing uh, words as weapons and how it fuels kind of not even necessarily misinformation or disinformation, but it's it's a form of information warfare. Um, like, so I, I like watching uh, Tucker Carl, Tucker Carlson because uh, sometimes he's funny and uh, sometimes he's not wrong. But he, I've heard him say a couple of times now, ISIS-K, if they even exist. Now, that, that, is, impo- that is an important thing because, yes, um, they're technically, it's like uh, ISIS, uh, Kobani, I think. Khorasan. Is the, Khorasan. Is, or Khorasan, sorry. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Um, in the Khorasan. But they did the same thing to Al-Qaeda. Uh, ISIS was originally Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and they changed their names. Um, and again, how how you identify this, um, you know, people in the Middle East, they call them Daesh, um, because that was the, the initials in, in Arabic, but it also had some other uh, offensive meaning to the Daesh fighters. Um, and yeah, it does kind of, it's like soda and pop, or... Right sneakers and tennis shoes it you know it does kind of identify certain things and how words are used like january 6 riots versus january 6 insurrection right right um and you know it, it it does you know you really uh you do have to pay attention to the verbiage being used and how things are being identified and why um and, and it puts and it, it, I, sorry to interrupt but it, it also well, puts no, some good. weight on people on the front lines that are doing these jobs, you know, it's not, 
it's not World War II where we could just go, yeah, the Nazis, you know, the Krauts, you know, those are the Jerry's, you know, and, and we all knew who we were talking about. There's there's a lot of nuance now and misinformation where people capitalize off the confusion. And there's a lot of stock to be gained by identifying something as one thing and not another, right? Right. So the, uh, the reason I brought up the ISIS-K thing was because these were technically Taliban fighters who didn't like the i i hesitate to say uh moderation of the the modern taliban but you know they were looking at isis and what isis did to uh, iraq and syria and they're like you know what that's what we need to be doing we need to up our game and become that level of brutal but they were taliban and you know some some were Mm al-qaeda but they were mostly taliban and that kind of got lost in in this uh uh in the say in this like how it was identified and so now biden can say isis k millie can say you know hey we we droned an isis k and everybody's like oh isis isis bad it's taliban they're just crazier taliban yeah and uh, I'm, I'm, glad, it, I'm glad you brought that up. Let me, if I can just throw a point of clarification yeah, in, yeah. just so people are aware, it, a lot of the ISIS K also came from. There's people should understand. There's two different Taliban's. There's the Afghan Taliban, but it's also the Pakistani Taliban, where a lot of ISIS K members came, and they are very different from the Afghan Taliban because they're focused on ousting the Pakistani government, and they have never allied with the pack with the Afghan Taliban. So they've always there's always been a cross purpose that they've had. So when ISIS K came about, what you're sort of seeing is an exponentially increased uh, conflict between Pakistani Taliban and Afghan Taliban. And that's why the two, especially in Nangahar and Kunar province out in the east, that's why the two would often fight. But again, these are this is these are details that it's important for people to say and it's important for that to be out there, but nobody's gonna pay attention to it. And it is these are the nuances that are gonna get lost. Right. And I mean you see you see that too with uh, you know, you hear people say, Oh, well, you know, we created the Taliban. It's like yes, oh, yes and no. Yes yeah. and no. It's like yeah. Some aspects, yes. But again, like, I mean, this goes back to the Soviet war, too, where a lot of these Afghan refugees and how the Pakistanis were dealing with it. And even some of the the tribal, um, uh, the tribal elements uh, there in Waziristan and kind of, I mean, even the Taliban couldn't control Waziristan. So right. they just left them, left them alone. And, uh, but Waziristan also kind of, Breaches into, you know, well, Pakistan can't control it either. And so they didn't want this hub of radicalization um, now became a a pretty big uh, harbor of poppy farmers, too, which then also is now being used to to fund and fuel, um, you know, this the insurgency. And they I mean, it, it helped them win. Yeah. And yeah. it was one of those second, third order effects that wasn't thought about, you know, October 2001. And and, and it, it, to me, what's so disturbing about it, and I guess one, because it's the issue of our show today, but also I, I think it's an important issue. It, it's not even the tactical and strategic viewpoints. It's also the messaging. Um, and Dex, when we look at whether it's the border, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's any national security crisis we face – there has to be the willingness to message it honestly and to be an honest broker of that information. 
And I wonder, and I'm thinking out loud here, so correct me um, if you see this differently, but I wonder what the obligation is on those that have been in the national security apparatus to help add more light than heat and not simply play to the crowd or not simply go with the easy answer, but to really get into the weeds on the nuances and the differences because I think it's it's very easy to poke outrage, but it's a lot harder to really understand what the issues are and what the fixes are to a lot of this stuff. Well, I, I think it's – it's very important for us who are actually working the day-to-day operation, but it's no different than asking an active duty service member to speak out against sure. the military. Sure. It's very difficult to, sure. to make change from the inside. It really takes our civilian oversight and leadership to do that. Um, one of the things you mentioned a, a few minutes ago that I want to circle back to, to use a Jim Pataki term, um, is that uh, whenever, during World War II, you know, everyone was united against the Krauts, the Jerrys, the Nazis. We lumped all of Germany into that one name. And nowadays, you use the term ISIS, the first thing people say is like, well, they're not all bad. They're not, just because they're from Pakistan, they're not all going to be bad. Don't, don't lump an entire country or population in with that one term which we could do back in World War II, um, whether it was because there was a nation that was part of the industrial war machine, even if you were just a, you know, a German baker making bread that was eventually sold to the German soldiers who were going so on and so forth, that we as Americans didn't have any problem putting an entire culture into that one little square and definition of you're a bad person because yeah. you're German and Germans are all, all, all bad. I think nowadays it's very difficult for us, and when, I believe that's a good thing. I, I think there is benefit in separating out, you know, the the wheat from the chaff and who the dragon is um, in in the actual um, in, in the fight. So nowadays, whenever we try to define the enemy, it's much more difficult for us to get the support and backing as opposed to in 1943 or 1944, where it's like, okay, you're from Japan, you must be bad. You yeah. must be part of the yeah. imperial nation. You're a German, you must be bad. Um, and whether that was the right action or wrong action back then, I you know, I, I don't have the experience firsthand knowledge to say, um, but we won those wars. That's great, goodness in that. Um, now it's very difficult to identify the enemy because we have so many different definitions of what the enemy actually is. And until you can define the enemy, how do you define success against that enemy? Yeah. So whether well, it's ISIS or ISIS-K or however, that's the narrative that's going to be presented. And that's what's yeah. difficult. No, sorry to cut you off. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Our greatest strength is our greatest weakness. We, I, I agree with you. It is so much better. I remember my dad um, – told a story of uh, obviously we were Germans. Uh, we were a German family in, in uh, Missouri and they were harassed a lot during world war two. And he told a story about a kid he went to school with that was really like off the boat from Germany. Um, you know, very recent immigrant that really just got brutally picked on uh, during world war two. And I think ended up killing himself. Um, so uh, obviously your heart breaks over stuff like that. And that's not great. Um, not good uh, remotely, but it is. But our greatest strength becomes our greatest weakness. That sensitivity 
that appreciation of humanity, that, that desire to do right to the most oppressed minority can also then be weaponized to make us blind to what a threat is and to obfuscate our language. And that's a very delicate balance I think we're finding to strike. And that's, I think, what makes this messaging, this information warfare aspect of our current national security struggles so tricky and um, and so difficult to dev out and sort out correctly. Don't you think, Ben? I, I, I have I have something to add to that because it, it is it is just uh, it is not just about um, the words that are that are used. Uh, you guys started bringing up a good point that you know imagery plays a huge role in this too, and making sure that there is an image literacy in uh, in this. And uh, the the example I use is uh, I believe it was in. Michigan, there was a protest in uh, the Capitol building, and you see a group of, uh, 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 it was, I, I can't remember if it was anti-lockdown protesters, I want to say it was anti-lockdown protesters, and they were in the Capitol, and they were, um, uh, oh, was this the kidnapping line of, of the Gretchen state Whitmer police thing? Yeah, no, okay. no, no. There I was, was, uh, it was yeah. they were in the in the Capitol, and there was like a line of state troopers. Okay, and you see one of the protesters yelling, um, and it looks like he's yelling in the face of the the state troopers that are kind of blocking this doorway mm-hmm. to this this legislative hall, um, and uh, you know that's what the image looks like. However, if you offset it. If you look at it, looked at it from a different angle or the full clip, you could see that he was actually in between two officers yelling at the door, the legislators behind the door, mm-hmm. not at the officer. Yeah. And again, there's um, it, it, it all is incorporated in this information warfare and yeah. people not understanding um, these these pictures uh, like uh, yeah. what they're what they're actually looking at. Um, but it, but going to, you know, the difference between a state war, like we did in World War II, I mean, even up to, um, Vietnam, Desert Storm, you know, we had a uniformed enemy, somebody that we could identify, we could show an image of and say, this is the bad guy. You know, this guy wearing, you know, the, the silver lightning bolts, he is a bad dude we're going to give him, you know, he needs to be smoke checked. Um, you know, the, the, uh, I mean, again, desert storm, you know, the, the Republican guard, you know, the Iraqi Republican guard, it was a known enemy. These were the bad guys. Um, you know, even, even the Viet Cong gave us, you know, the black pajamas as it was, you know, it was, it was a, a tangible, um, uh, it was a tangible image that we could, identify and say, okay, this is, this is the bad guy. Now in the counterinsurgency, um, that we've been dealing with the last 20 years, it's, it's Islamic violent extremism. There's, there's, it's so hard to put in uh, and cultivate an image without, you know, pulling up all the racial tropes and everything, yeah. um, you know, and denigrate the subject. Um, yeah. Because I mean, you, you look at uh, you look at FARC, for example, yep. in Colombia. I mean, they they wear uniforms. They identify themselves as a as a force. Um, I mean, ISIS kind of did 
kind of does, but it's more, um, you know, they, they have incorporated uh, uniforms or had incorporated uniforms into their, their image. They have that flag. It was an easy enemy to identify. And so once we finally got our act together and was like, okay, yes, we're going after these guys, it became an easy, uh, an easy thing to get behind. Um, whereas again, it's, it's hard to delineate who's Taliban, who's, you know, regular Afghan, you know, a, a regular Afghan, you know, who's, um, uh, you know, January 6th, who, who was there to be malfeasant, who was just caught up in the moment. Well, and that's, and that gets into the weaponization of, of the media. And I don't mean the media necessarily like broadcast media, although there can be that as well, but also just, uh, imagery, as you said, um, how things are messaged, how we capture pictures, and with social media, how that gins people up. You know, we've gone from those initial fears of flash mobs happening at the blink of an eye to now actual organized protests, sedition, um, you know, uh, uh, violence, you know, violence that can be gymmed up through social media, sometimes through mis-messaging. So I, I think, yeah, this is, um, I, I couldn't agree more. That That does become a big, big, big issue. I want to, um, since we're pushing an hour and with the uh, technical mishaps, which fortunately or hopefully nobody listening has heard or has any idea about except through us talking about them, uh, but we are pushing on time. So I I don't want to take up everybody's Saturday uh, that we're recording this. Uh, So, Ben, let me pivot to you. Uh, Tell me about the Blackwater Memorial Alumni Association. You know, our... The Blackwater Memorial Alumni Association, uh, we set we set it up as a nonprofit to kind of uh, give this group that had sacrificed themselves um, protecting diplomats and um, other other government worker other government employees overseas some kind of support. Um, a lot of us are veterans, military, um, and former law enforcement, f- former federal law enforcement, also. Um, and this was just an organization that we kind of put together. Um, it started out as an annual reunion, just as kind of an MWR event. And mm-hmm. now it has branched out and we're actively raising large amounts of money to help our members out um, with, you know, somebody, somebody's car breaks down and they're broke. Hey, you know, we'll pay the mechanic to fix their car. Um, a, one of our members passes away. Um, you know, we kind of help support, uh, their families in that transition time. Um, and, and again, we also have a, have a large network to when uh, members in crisis, um, you know, kind of rallying a couple of guys together to do a a health and welfare check and, you know, try and avoid, you know, that, that 22 a day thing. Um, so it's been a, it's been a great organization, um, yeah, and we're always we're always looking for looking for anybody who wants to help us out. Very very cool, Dax. Tell me about this strange new country, America, and what it should be about. Wow, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, I, I just throw me a softball. Just, 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 just so everybody's aware, when I said to Dax, he's like, "What do you want to plug?" He's like, "I want to plug America." It's like it sounds intriguing. I, I, I want to see where this goes. So I'm giving him the broad canvas on which to paint here. Well, I, I mean, I, I really do believe that uh, when you, I call it the Plato theory, and not Plato like uh, Socrates and Plato, but Plato, the squishy stuff. 
when government is the fist and the population is the Plato, and you grab it and you squeeze it, you see all the bad parts come out from in between. It just squirts out mm. from all everywhere. But when government has the role of that it you know, should be, it's the overarching uh, control, but it's not very tight. Everyone treats each other like they should be treated, and they treat the others as they want to be treated. We're going to have our differences. That's fine. That is That is what's a nation of immigrants is about. But whenever you don't have tolerance, and that's what I'm seeing right now is yeah. not tolerating the other people's views, it seems like it invites the fist to squeeze the Play-Doh, and now you start to see all these other you know extreme factions squirting out, you know, and and it just is a, an incredible distractor to how great we can be if we have the opportunity to control ourselves. And I don't want to say it's generational, whether it's Generation X, Generation Y, or whatever, because I think inherently at the end of the day, we're going to come out and we're going to be okay. This is not the 1960s. I wasn't alive in the 60s. The racial divide in the 60s, I believe, was much worse than it is right now. But what's different? We don't have as much media and access to media and platforms as we do now. Um, I, I think we've come a long way, uh, and I think we've got a, a long way to go. However, we're on the right track, and I just really wish whenever people go and they look at someone else and say it's a different view, I'm okay with that. Not my yeah, view. Yeah. But that's fine. It's funny. We did an episode, or I did an episode, I did a solo um, months ago um, on tolerance versus endorsement just because I was seeing that come up more and more. And I think um, your your thoughts are spot on, in my opinion, Dax. Um, but the point is that tolerance is tolerating things you don't agree with. There's no there's no nobility in tolerating only things that you agree with. That's not tolerance. Um, and to demand that everyone think like you is just a push for endorsement. It's not a push for tolerance. Um, so yeah, couldn't agree more. It's a great shout out, and um, and it's a good uh, coda to this episode. I will take one privileged moment though, just to plug some new initiatives that I have coming out that I want to make sure I give a voice to right now uh, that will take us in a totally different track, but vet rep, which I've told you guys about the veterans repertory theater that uh, I founded um, and that his, and that Charlie faint uh, have a journal owner sits on our board and we're doing well. There's a lot of things going on, but the, the piece that just came into play Yesterday is we have launched our literary blog at savagewonder.substack.com. Again, that's savagewonder.substack.com. It is free to subscribe. Stuff gets sent right to your inbox. And concurrent with that is the Savage Wonder podcast. So if you're going, boy, I can't wait an entire week to hear you talk again, and you're desperate for more of my voice, um, so all three of you that feel that way, uh, please go over to savagewonder.podbean.com. Dot com Again, that's savagewonder.podbean.com, where our first episode is up featuring Charlie Faint. So because you don't hear enough of Charlie and I on this podcast, you can go over there and hear us talk in a totally different platform and for a bit of a different reason. Um, so please check that out. Um, I will just say, uh, as the our tagline indicates, Savage Wonder podcast is about the intersection of the warrior and the artist. 
So what we try to do is one, one-on-one long-form conversations with people who have a foot in the world of the warrior and a foot in the world of the artist. That is, there are very few people that have that. So it's a, it's a fun podcast, uh, and we have a good time with it, and I'm looking forward to who our guests are coming up. I won't do any spoilers now, but it'll be very, very cool stuff. So if you have the bandwidth, please check it out. Dax, Ben, this has been one adventure of a show, both content-wise and technically. But thanks, guys, for being here. I really appreciate it. Proud to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for, Thank you. for having me on, and always, always happy to come back. Be a pleasure. So, guys, to everyone else, if you have not already subscribed, please do. If you're on iTunes, a five-star review would be outstanding. You can say whatever you want about us. We accept all questions, comments, snide remarks. If you can attach them to a five-star review, though, that would be great because the metrics do matter. Show notes will be available at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Again, that's theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. They will also be available in the accompanying article that I'll write for Havoc Journal, uh, for each one of these episodes or wherever you're listening to this podcast, just scroll up or down or wherever it is on your on this on the particular app that you're listening to, and you will see the show notes for this episode. There'll be some. I don't think there'll be a ton on this, but there will be some. There'll also be alibis for anything that I misstated, misremembered, something that needed more context. Um, sometimes just to do some self depreciating humor, uh, self deprecating humor. Sorry, brain isn't all there today. Um, but any, any jokes or, or, you know, anything I do to lighten the mood, I'll put usually in the alibis. The alibis also will apply to our guests who can uh, send in anything that they felt that they misremembered, misstated, something need more context. Generally, nobody takes me up on that because usually I'm the only one that brain farts to the degree that I need to write something up about it and cover my own ass. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Dax Mallory and Ben Varlise. We'll keep trying to make a little order out of chaos when we see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. Boy, is it a show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was about to get droned here. And <laughs> we had we had everything that could have come at us. Oh my lord! Post production's gonna be fun. Yeah, be a good one, <laughs> guys. That was great. Dax, man, you're a rock. Thanks. You you weathered everything from guest cancellations to planes. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>